Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. You may notice uh, from the outline that Ricky gave you, or even from the screen behind me, uh, that this particular psalm, Psalm 74, it's got the same theme as the rest, but things are shortened up a bit. Instead of moving from fear to faith, Psalm 74 has only two points. It's got fear and it's got facts. But that movement out of fear and to faith, it happens only one way. That's what we've learned in 73 psalms so far. The only biblically prescribed method of leaving fear and ever arriving at a faith that's good for us and glorifying to God is by focusing on the facts. And that's what Asaph does in the second half of this psalm. And so once we've done that, once we've moved from fear and begun to focus on the facts, uh, the transition and and trajectory uh, to faith, it's already in process. Let's read Psalm 74, then we'll pray and study it verse by verse. It says, O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed, this Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. Lift up thy feet unto the perpetual desolations, even all that the enemy has done wickedly in the sanctuary. Thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. They set up their ensigns for signs. A man was famous according as he had lifted up axes from the thick trees, but now they break down the carved work thereof at once with axes and hammers. They've cast fire into thy sanctuary. They have defiled by casting down the dwelling place of thy name to the ground. And they said in their hearts, let us destroy them together. They have burned up all the synagogues of God in the land. We see not our signs. There is no more any prophet. Neither is there among us any that knoweth how long. O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Why withdrawest thou thy hand, even thy right hand? Pluck it out of thy bosom. For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the water. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Thou didst cleave the fountain and the flood. Thou driedest up mighty rivers. The day is thine, the night also is thine. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Thou hast set all the borders of the earth. Thou hast made the summer and winter. And remember this, that the enemy hath reproached, O Lord, and that the foolish people have blasphemed thy name. O deliver not the soul of thy turtle dove unto the multitude of the wicked. Forget not the congregation of thy poor forever. Have respect unto the covenant For the dark places of the earth, they're full of habitations of cruelty. Let not the oppressed return to shame. Let the poor and needy praise thy name. Arise, O God, plead thine own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches thee daily. Forget not the voice of thine enemies, the tumult of those that rise up against thee. 
increaseth continually. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word this evening, and you've laid out here a clearly fearful situation that Asaph is describing for himself and for God's people, but you also show us how we can leave that place of fear. And you've given us a few facts here in the second half to look at. And I pray that should any of us find ourselves in a place of fear tonight, that the reminders we have here in the second half of this psalm would help us uh, ascend out of that place. Uh, reveal yourself in your word tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verses 1 through 11, fear is described among God's people. Uh, Asaph begins by describing uh, a genuine sense of abandonment by God that he feels. Uh, now, I know I said that the psalm really only had two parts, fear and, and facts, but, but faith is present and not just in the second half. Uh, it's even here at the beginning in, in what we might call the fear section because once again, Asaph opens up this prayer song, just like David does, by taking this prayer, taking his fear to the Lord in prayer. And in verse 1, Asaph tells God that because of what he is experiencing in his life circumstances, at this moment, it feels like God has cast off his people forever. Like the relationship they have with God is, is over and done. Uh, like his anger is smoking against them. And notice it's not just smoking against human beings in general, but God's people, the sheep of his pasture. And so there's this genuine sense of abandonment that Asaph feels, that he's been abandoned by God. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned Asaph or his people. And in fact, we know that according to God's word, that can't happen. Praise the Lord, it won't happen. Uh, when he hung on the cross, and when he spoke that phrase that we'll study together this Sunday as we wrap up our study in Mark, when, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That right there ensures you and I as Christians that because Jesus was forsaken by God, because of our sin being poured out on him, well, we can rest assured that that will never happen to us who have trusted in Christ as Savior. Yes, the Christian can hold to the promise of Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. But still there are circumstances that we can encounter in our life that can cause fear in, in God's people even to the point where at times we sense an abandonment by God. It seems, it seems that he has abandoned us. And so Asaph leads us in a prayer that we should pray if we find ourselves in that situation. In verse 2 he says, remember your congregation which you've purchased of old, Lord, the, the rod or the tribe of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed. Uh, this Mount Zion, a, a symbolic of God's presence among his people, uh, the church definitely aligning with that, wherein thou hast dwelt. And, and the verb remember there um, in Hebrew is zakar. It does not mean remember uh, as we think of it, or as we might define remember. It's not, uh, oh yeah, like I had forgot. Um, zakar means not to just notice, but to act. And so Asaph's calling for God to act here. It's not that God is unaware of these circumstances. It's not that God is unaware of our fears, but that we are to call out to him to act. We're to pray and ask God to rise up and deliver us, either from our circumstances or from the fears that are caused by them. 
And that's what Asaph continues to ask God to do in verse 3. He says, lift up your feet unto the perpetual desolations. When he says, lift up your feet, he's saying, please get moving, God. Please pick up the pace of my deliverance, of you coming to my rescue. Because while the abandonment by God might only be seeming and not actual, the circumstances that are causing that sense in Asaph, they're very real. Um, in fact, they're a major source of anxiety for Asaph. It begins in the second part of verse 3. We see what's the source of anxiety for him. Perpetual desolations. Perpetual meaning they just keep on going. It's been a long time um, since you delivered us. Things are not good. Even all that the enemy has done wickedly in the sanctuary. So this is interesting. We learned last week, um, this is one of the first Psalms. We had one earlier. That was the human author was Asaph last week. And now we're on the second one. We learned then that um, he was a contemporary of King David. Uh, He was a worship leader in David's era in the temple. But what is about to be described in detail in verses 4 through 11 uh, as a source of anxiety for Asaph, it did not happen in Asaph's lifetime. Um, So this leads some Bible scholars to believe that Asaph, this one that lived with David and was the worship leader during David's reign, that um, uh, he wasn't the human author, that maybe it was like some descendants of David or somebody like a group of worship leaders later on, centuries later, that took Asaph's name for their group because this perpetual desolation in verse 3 and what's described in verses 4 through 11, it happened quite a bit later, uh, hundreds of years after Asaph lived. Uh, Three different times, once by the Egyptians, once by the Babylonians, once by the Greeks. All three of those um, nations, they entered the temple, they defiled it, and they destroyed it. But they did so, all three of them, long, long after Asaph lived. I believe Asaph did write this psalm. I mean, it says so. (laughs) Sometimes you just need to take things at face value. And um, he was the one who God inspired to write it. But that's just the thing. God inspired it. for Asaph. God told him what to write. And so it's, it's entirely possible that this psalm is not a historic description of something that happened, but it was prophetic in Asaph's time. That Asaph uh, got a prophetic vision of what would happen when God's people disobeyed him, and then God allowed what is described in verses 4 to 11 to occur for the purpose of discipline and turning them back to the Lord. Let's look at what's described there. This is the source of Asaph's anxiety. Verse 4, your enemies, God, they roar in the midst of thy congregations. They set up their ensigns uh, for signs. So signs and symbols in the temple, in the sanctuary, uh, that were reminders of God. Things like, um, you know them from the Old Testament and studying that. The the bronze laver, the, the altar, even the Ark of the Covenant. They're gone, and they've been replaced by pagan or military Flags, symbols, signs. That's what's in the temple now. Look at verses uh, 5 and 6. A man was famous, according to, as he had lifted up, axes upon the thick trees. But now they break down the carved work thereof at once with axes and hammers. And you can read in the Old Testament about the construction of the temple uh, under Solomon. And uh, even back earlier, the, the, the uh, construction of the tabernacle uh, during Moses and his ministry to God's people. And there was skilled artisans. Uh, and in the temple, they carved out huge cedars from Lebanon. Uh, skilled craftsmen did it. That's what verse 5 is talking about. There were people who were famous for the work they did on the church. But now what's happened? 
They took axes, the same ones that built the temple, the same tools that were used to build the temple uh, have been used by God's enemies to break it down. Literal destruction. Axes, hammers are taken to the foundations, uh, to the furniture of the sanctuary. Verses 7 and 8 says they've cast fire into thy sanctuary. They have defiled it by casting it down Uh, to the ground, the dwelling place of thy name. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them together. They burned up all the synagogues of God in the land. Now, synagogues is an interesting word because there weren't synagogues like there are today. There was one temple. There was one tabernacle. Uh, Synagogues just uh, is a translation for meeting places. There were other places that God's people would collect to worship. Not anymore. Not not right now. That's what Asaph's describing. Uh, And when Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon invaded, Uh, Literally, in verses 7 and 8, they burnt the temple down to the ground. It was a pile of ashes. That's all that was left. 9 and 10. (laughs) Asa says, we see not our signs. There's no more any prophet. Neither is there among us any that knoweth how long. And he asked God in the next verse, how long? So all of the things in the temple that uh, promoted and and propelled worship, I don't know about you, we don't have a temple, it's not ornate like that one, but I I pray that this place fuels your worship. It does. I love the way it looks in here. Uh, It's very conducive to worship. There's times I come in here during the week and the sun's coming through the stained glass windows and it elevates your heart to worship. That's not happening here. It's destroyed. It's a pile of ashes. And, And not only that, um, there's no prophet. There's no spiritual leadership. According to verses 9 and 10, there's no word from the Lord. And so there's no telling how long that this state of things is going to continue. So here's a question for you. Would this be a source of anxiety for you? I want you to consider just a moment if this occurred here and now. We just had a wonderful homecoming celebration. But let's say that because of circumstances just like these, but now in our day, um, we can't have one next year because there's nowhere to have it. I mean, this building, the Fellowship Hall, Family Life Center, is non-existent. It's been burnt to a pile of ashes, and, and an invading army has come in, and they set it up as their center for political operations. Your pastors, your deacons, your Sunday school leaders, your, your, your other leaders here at Dublin First Baptist are either dead, or they're in captivity, or they've run for their lives. The Word of God is no longer declared from this pulpit, from this church. And there's no telling how long till things are going to change. And not only that, you can't go to Bethel. It's gone too. You can't go to Galilee. It's gone too. All the synagogues. There's no more meeting places. This is what Asaph's experiencing. Maybe it's not even the building that's defiled. I'm trying to get yourself to you to put yourself in, in ace of shoes. Maybe, maybe it's not the building that's decimated and, and destroyed. Maybe it's the actual residence of God for you and I. You and I. Maybe that's what's happening. What I mean is that our home where I live, um, our families, maybe my health or your health, our career, uh, our lives, invaded by the wicked and now lying in a pile of ashes. Would either of those two hypothetical situations, would they be a source of anxiety for you? Fear? Uh, Would you have a sense of seeming abandonment by God? Yeah, I've been there. I know many of you have too, because you've told me as such. And that's what Asaph is envisioning, happening to God's people down the road. And that's why he feels what he feels in verses 1 and 2. God, you cast us off forever? 
Why is your anger smoking against your people? But Asaph doesn't want to stay there. He doesn't want to stay in this prophetic vision. He doesn't want to stay in this place of fear. He does not for a moment longer want to wonder if God has abandoned his people. And that's why he prays what he prays in verse 11. Lord, why do you withdraw? Why did you withdraw your hand of blessing, your right hand, your powerful hand in our lives? Pluck it out of your bosom. <laughs> Literally means a pocket. Like people used to put their hand in their pocket. and say, Like, God, you're not acting. It feels like you're no longer for us. And Asaph and you and I, if we're in a similar situation, we can continue to focus on this nightmare. Who wants to do that? Or we can focus on the facts, that essential first step out of fear and toward faith. And that's what he does in the rest of this chapter. We see the facts for God's people that are discerned in the rest of this song. First of all, fact number one is God's deliverance. That's talked about in verses 12 to 17. That promise I mentioned earlier from Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. It is a wonderful promise. It is a reality. It is a fact. But when you are looking at a pile of ashes in your life, wherever that, that's taken place, that promise, I will never leave you or forsake you, it can seem to be less powerful or less relevant. It might be a struggle. Uh, you might acquiesce to that reality here, but you don't quite believe it here at that time. So God has Asaph teach us where to focus for the faith to believe this promise. And he tells us to go back to the beginning. That's what he does in verses 12 to 15. There's a big change in tone from verse 11 to verse 12. Now he says, for God is my king of old. He works salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the dragons in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave us them to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You, you did cleave the fountain and the flood. You dried up mighty rivers. And when he's talking about dragons and Leviathan, those are poetic descriptions, uh, symbols of, of Egypt. So what is he talking about here in verses 12 to 15? What is Asaph's mind now focused on? What fact is he relating to himself and to God's people? the beginning of God's people's relationship with him. I mean, really, the birth of Israel. Yes, I know uh, Abraham received that promise, but he also was told that generations later, uh, his descendants would be bondage in Egypt. And that's what's described here, is when, when God in his mercy and his grace and really the beginning of his relationship with his people, when he purchased them and when he redeemed them from slavery out of Egypt, when he miraculously and powerfully delivered them from bondage to freedom. Isn't that what it describes? He parted the Red Sea. That never happened before. It was miraculous. It was powerful. They went through safe and unharmed, and then those walls of water, God collapsed them on their enemies. He delivered his people. And so, Christian, go back to the beginning. <laughs> When you're struggling to believe, I will never leave you or forsake you, and it feels like God has cast you off forever because there's a pile of ashes still smoldering in your life, go back to the beginning. When did he do that for you? When did he purchase you and redeem you from the bondage of sin and death to freedom and life? Do you remember that day when the Holy Spirit came down and he took the gospel of Jesus Christ and he said, come, yield, submit your mind now. When you were born again, 
when you were adopted into his family, that day you received uh, eternal life. Nothing will give you a radical reorientation to the reality of God's presence in your life, even when it feels like he's forsaken you and cast you off forever. Uh, His power in your life, like you going back to the beginning and remembering what he has done for you. I want you to go to Romans 8, 28. We'll be right back here. We're just going to go here for a moment. And I know you know this verse well. It's on every coffee cup. It's on stickers. It's on screensavers and everything else because it's an incredible verse. Romans 8, 28. It's a truth I've, I've taught you before, but hang with me because I need it every day. <laughs> Romans 8, 28. This is so vital. We've got to go here for this reminder uh, because when you are beholding what you hold dear, like Asaph is, and what you hold dear is in a pile of ashes, we need Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good. For everybody? No. To them who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. So this is a message. This is an application for Christians. All things work together for good. To them that love God. To them who are called according to his purpose. Beautiful verse, isn't it? Have you ever struggled to believe it? I'll testify. Y'all want to be? No. I hold it deep in my heart. There's times we struggle to believe it, just like we struggle to believe Hebrews 13, 5. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Can I just have you go down to a couple verses, to verses 31 and 32? When you struggle to believe this verse... Maybe even draw, if you're a Bible-marking person, just make an arrow down to 31, because there's times when you doubt this. What does it say in verse 31? What shall we say then to these things? What things? That all things will work together uh, for your good, for God's glory. And and what he said in verse 29, that he's called you, that he's justified you, that he's glorified you. You Your home in heaven is as sure as anything, that he uses a past tense word in verse 30. What shall we say then to these things? We should say this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Don't hold on there. This is the, this is the foundation. If Romans 8, 28 is a beautiful verse, and it is, this is the verse that holds that one up when we, we struggle to believe it. Look at verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give you all things? Do you see how that adds some foundation and support and power to Romans 8, 28? When you just, you're struggling to believe it. It's important. Verse 32, he took us back. Paul took us back to the beginning here. He, spared, he didn't spare his own son for you. He died to save you. Go back to when you realized that. And you trusted in Christ as Savior. And that will help you. That focusing on that fact will help you. Believe Romans 8, 28. It'll help you believe Hebrews 13, 5. That's what Asaph's doing back there in Psalm 74. Let's go back there. You know what? Let's go back even further. Because that's what Asaph does in verses 16 and 17. The day is thine, God. The night also is thine. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Thou hast set all the borders of the earth. Thou hast made summer and winter. What's he talking about there? He went really back to the beginning, didn't he? Like Genesis 1, 1. He's talking about creation there. That God is a creator. And that God is the sustainer. Ann Voskamp is a Christian author. And one of my favorite quotes from her is, she says, if the heavens declare, that's in the Psalms too, right? 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. She says, if the heavens declare, get out there. If the heavens declare, get out there. You see, sometimes we can't see past the pile of ashes because we're sitting there looking at them. We won't glance away. We've got tunnel vision. And we're unintentionally ignoring God's power that's all around us, everywhere else. That could remind us that he hasn't forsaken us. <laughs> and he hasn't cast us off. One of my favorite hymns, it's an old one. I think we're going to sing it later. This is my father's world. And it says there, in my father's world, the birds, their carols raise. I'm glad they do, because sometimes I don't feel like singing. But then I hear them, and I'm like, hmm. If they're doing it, maybe I should be too. The birds are carols raised. The morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. What am I doing? Looking at a pile of ashes? This is my father's world. In the rustling grass, I can hear him pass. He speaks to me where? Everywhere. (laughs) Everywhere. If you're looking, if you're listening, this is my father's world. This is my favorite part. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, like this pile of ashes, God is a ruler yet. God is a ruler yet. Fact number two. So not just that God is our deliverer, but God is also dependable. In verse 18, it says, Remember this, that the enemy has reproached our Lord, and that the foolish people, they've blasphemed your name. So verse 18 begins with this plea for God to remember again. And remember, in Hebrew, it means more than just to bring to mind, but to, he's asking God to rise up and act. And Asaph does what Moses so often did when God's people were in a bad place, self-inflicted or otherwise. Uh, he appeals, Asaph appeals to God's glory. And it's okay for you to do that too uh, in a prayer for deliverance. Uh, He says here, the enemy has reproached God. God, your name is being blasphemed by all of this. By this pile of ashes and, and by me awaiting deliverance. In verse 19, Asaph appeals to God's glory in his relationship with his people. Oh, deliver not the soul of thy turtle dove. That's very poetic language in here. You've got dragons and leviathan and a turtle dove. Why are we as turtle dove? Doves are pretty defenseless, aren't they? Pretty defenseless. That's what we are. And he says, deliver our soul, God, from the multitude of the wicked. Don't forget the congregation of thy poor forever. And why can Asaph make this appeal to God's glory and the relationship that he's supposed to have with his people. Because they haven't been forsaken. And they won't be. Why? Well, because of verse 20. Have respect unto the covenant. Because the dark places of the earth, they're full of the habitations. Is this a cruel world often? Yeah. So God, have respect to the covenant. What is he talking about? What covenant? What contract? Well, the one that God made with his people. The one that he has never broken. And the one that he never will because he is incapable of doing so. It's against his nature. It's an impossibility for God to break his covenant. He has entered into a covenant of grace with you and I, uh, with whosoever will believe in his grace to us in Jesus Christ. And that covenant is an eternal contract that cannot be nullified or broken. 
Without a doubt, it is a contract to work all things together for your good and for his glory, as Romans 8.28 promised. And it's founded on what we learned in Romans 8.32. It's founded on and supported by the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And he died for you. If he was willing to go that far, don't you think he also wants to do good to you in this pile of ashes scenario? Don't you think he's powerful enough? Don't you think he's present? There's a covenant that's made by a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God that has a 100% track record of keeping his promises. And friend, I say this with the, the deepest and most sincere empathy for you and the potential pile of ashes that you might be in front of, but you and your circumstances are not going to be the first time that breaks that record. They're not. Your situation's not going to be the first one that doesn't make the cut where God is going to fail. That's a continued cry of Asaph in verses 21 and 22. Don't let the oppressed return to shame. Let the poor and needy praise thy name. Based on your covenant, based on your dependability, arise, O God. Plead your own cause. So again, he's appealing to the covenant-keeping God here. Asaph's talking about God being glorified, God being magnified in rising up and delivering his people and, and keeping his promise to do good to his people. He's saying, deliver us, God. Take this pile of ashes and do something with it for my good and for your glory. Asaph's saying, God, don't let this go on and on and on. That's what he says. The foolish man, verse 22, the foolish man reproaches thee daily. It's just continual. This is a perpetual desolation. Verse 23, forget not the voice of thine enemies. It's a tumult that rises up against thee and it increases continually. This doesn't seem like it's getting better. And that's it. That's the end. Verse 23, it's the end of the song. So please notice, deliverance has not come yet. The pile of ashes is still there. The wicked are still there uh, in the sanctuary. Prayer has been made. Praise has been given by Asaph. And hopefully already in you and I, in the Holy Spirit taking this word and changing our perspective and realigning our focus. But the psalm is over. And nothing's changed. The circumstances, they're still the same currently. But has nothing changed? I'd say Asaph has. And there a change between verses 11 and 12? <laughs> it's a pretty big change. Fear's now behind him. Facts are before him. That's the whole second half of this song. And faith, faith's ahead. Face ahead for him. I hope that's true of you too. I hope Psalm 74, that's my prayer that it's done that for you. I don't know if you're standing in a front of a proverbial pile of ashes tonight, but if I hope you aren't. But if you aren't, you might be later this week or later this month or this year. And if you are, what are you going to do? Will you remain focused on it and frazzled by it like Asaph was in the first 11 verses? Or will you do what God has taught us to do through this worship leader here? And will you cry out to God in prayer? You can be as honest as Asaph was. He's pretty honest there, isn't he? When he's praying to God, he's not trying to keep it all together. He says, God, I feel like you've abandoned me. Will you do that as you express to God in prayer and plead for his deliverance? Will you cry out to God in praise like Asaph did at the beginning of the second half of this song? Praising him for his deliverance. Going back to the beginning, 
praising him for being the creator and sustainer. You, and you can do both at the same time. In fact, if you start that prayer, I, I got a feeling you're going to end up there just like Asaph did. Will you reorient your focus from that pile of ashes and the wicked who are all around us to your God who delivers and who is dependable? And as we close in worship tonight, will you go back to the beginning? I hope you will as we sing these songs. I hope it sparks uh, a reminder of that time when God came down and he saved you and he delivered you. <laughs> I hope as we sing, this is my father's world. Uh, if you haven't been outside today, and this is the time of year when if, if you got to work, you probably won't see anything afterwards because it's dark. But just remember where you can see him, where you can hear him. If you'll turn your gaze away from that pile of ashes, if you'll let the noise of the embers not be drowned out by the hymns of creation. Take that first step out of fear and toward faith tonight by focusing on the facts about your delivering and dependable God. Have time.